Thank you, and uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, this is Philosophy Voiced. It's a podcast from the Center for Ethics, a study in human value at the University of Pardubice in the Czech Republic. And my name is Patrick Keenan. I'm here with my colleagues, Mati Siem and Philip Stramer. And we are uh, joined today with our guests, Sam Ashenden and Andreas Hess, who we're going to talk, and we're all going to have a nice discussion about uh, the political philosophy of Judith Sklar. Uh, so we were hoping that you guys can introduce yourselves and and maybe just talk about how you came to work with Judith Scar. Sam, you want to start? Okay, so I'm Sam Ashenden. I um, I first read Judith Scar, I think, as a PhD student when I went hunting for a book that would help me to comprehend legal processes. I wrote a PhD on child sexual abuse and on the relationship between public and private life and the ways in which uh, law incorporates various forms of scientific and quasi-scientific knowledge in the attempt to, to sort of deal with uh, archetypically private uh, relations that are abusive and so on. So I had been digging through law journals and I came across Judith Sklar's legalism, which I quite clearly didn't understand at the time. Um, but what's always struck me as the most exciting thing about Judith Sklar, um, and I say this as someone who's been teaching political theory ever since, is the way in which as the rest of the political theory world was becoming increasingly abstract and normative and system building, what Scar did was to keep herself close to the ground and to um, pick up really gritty problems for political theory and then try to work with them, try to use them to, to um, think about the limits and possibilities of, of other authors, to, to really expose the the predicaments that we face as, as citizens. So I, I like that aspect of Scar's work most, I think. Um, so I first came to her through legalism, but then subsequently, subsequently, then Andreas sort of sort of said to me, well, you know, there are all these uh, these uh, lectures of hers in the archive. So I was reading the manuscript of his book on Judith Scar and gave him a load of comments and he said, well, there, there are these lectures in the archive that, that no one's done anything with. We should, we should edit these together. Do you want to edit these with me? And I said, yes, and the rest is history. Over to you. <laughs> yes, uh, I think I came slightly differently to Sklar. Um, when I was, when my first academic job was actually in American studies at Sussex University. And uh, as it is when you're hired for uh, on a fixed term contract, um, you teach what you are told to teach. Uh, there's no great choice, so to speak. And uh, so one of the things I had to do was to teach a course on North American social and political thought or social theory. I can't remember exactly what the, the, the course title was. And um, so while I had done my dissertation on an, an American, North American subject, uh, I had only partial knowledge at best about the whole uh, what's actually available and out there. So while preparing for each lecture each week, I was always kind of a week ahead of my students and reading up pretty broadly about a number of topics across the field, whatever belonged to the social and political thoughts in North America. And soon I found out that there was very little available for European readers. There are a couple of introductions, either in politics or in sociology, or in philosophy, but nothing that actually combines the things. So while preparing this course, I started reading again a lot, uh, writing a lot, uh, having various test runs on topics. But it soon then in the second or third year when I was teaching the course, it became clear to me that I had enough material for an introduction book. And then somebody from Edinburgh University Press and New York University Press approached me and asked me whether I would like to write an introduction to American social and political thought. And since I had nothing else in the pipeline, I said, yes, I do that. And um, so uh, one of the few bridges uh, that is there to, in order to connect various topics and themes and thinkers with each other is actually Judith Sklar. Um, that might have something to do with the fact that she's not a systems builder. She's very good at interpreting others and bringing things together that haven't been 
thought of together before. So she, uh, I found her the most attractive reader of the, sorry, the most attractive um, writer of the whole lot that I had to deal with. And so one thing led to another. So uh, Sklar had read one book in German translation, but not much else. So I started investigating this and soon found out, oh, there's a lot more to the story. Nobody's ever written about her. And so I got into, into the subject and then that book came out, which then led to another book, which led to another book. And so at the end of the day, I thought, okay, I'm going to write a little monograph on, on Judith Sklar and her political theory, which was later then followed up uh, since Sam was also the reader of that manuscript for that book. Um, we then started writing together. Uh, first, you know, other things about uh, other aspects of Judith Sklar, maybe in comparison with other people. And then uh, it led to a quite extensive collaboration on our uh, two collections. One is the, the last lectures of Judith Sklar uh, entitled Under, uh, On Political Obligation, um, which are the lectures that Sam referred to, and then uh, a book of essays on her political thought, which uh, came out in the same year last year. So that's a short version. Very nice. And maybe let me just add, maybe there's some attraction uh, at least something that attracts me to Judith Sklar is um, she is clearly not a systems thinker. So to use the uh, metaphor that Isaiah Berlin has used, I mean, between Hedgehog and Fox, she clearly is a fox. If fox is the person, sorry, or, or symbolizes the person that moves and has no fixed standpoint and moves around and plays around uh, and changes the observation point the hedgehog, of course, sits there and looks at the world from one viewpoint, but doesn't do much about this. Cannot, I mean, both have their attraction, but I think at one point, in, at least in my life, I was a little bit fed up with people who want to sell you an ideology or a closed system. Um, but at the same time, you want to remain critical as well. And Judith's class allows you to do that, right? You can play around with her, but you can also be critical. And there's a great sense of realism about her work. Um, I think that attracted me to her in the first place. Yeah, it is, it is actually very interesting that what you described is, um, and I just, I'll just say this as a preface too, that uh, it's it's all new to me too, like her, her work. So I think maybe for Philip and Mati also, it, it was very new. So we did everything we could to kind of dive into and immerse ourselves in as much of, of scars we could find to get ready for this. but. Is it correct, kind of based on what you just said, that she's not, she's not building like, or she's she's sort of deconstructing an ideology, but but uh, like focusing on more foundations, like for fi finding like a first principle or something to begin with, and and just to say that's where that's where the the uh, aim that's what the aim should be is to kind of create this foundation and let the foundation uh, let build the foundations up so that they're strong enough, and then the political ideology just kind of emerges over time. I would say that she is, um, in fact, Hannes Bauer would, would put it like this. She's an anti-foundationalist thinker. She's somebody who I think take, took her view from the world in which she found herself. I mean, this is a woman who was exiled as a teenager, who pitches up first in Canada, then travels to America, finds herself in possibly the most august university mm. in the States, um, is readily aware, I think, of the fragility of the, uh, of the politics that, that she's a part of, of, of the apparent robustness of the US, but at the same time of the, the fragility of our relations with one another. And I think that, that whether it's that experience or from reading people like David Hume, yeah, she was a natural skeptic, I think, and therefore somebody who didn't, she doesn't, she doesn't search for an Archimedean point or for a foundation so much as interrogate the foundations that others think they've found. Um, and helps us to think about how we might um, need to furnish citizens with the with the means to be adequately capable of interacting with one another, but part of that means furnishing them with with predictability, reliability, and so on. So she becomes, I think, a um, 
a kind of liberal with Republican tendencies out of her skepticism. So it's out of the 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 sense of of the fragility of of people's lives and interactions with one another that that she builds a a kind of it's not so much a political she's a political theorist not because she built a political theory but because she interrogates those fundamental questions of of political theories such as what do we owe one another yeah um what kinds of obligations do we have to one another um what is the scope of, of sovereign power? Um, those are the sorts of, of, of questions that she interrogated. But I would say she's a sort of anti, she's an anti-foundational kind of thinker in that sense, yeah. So um, the way that you have now been describing her, um, and also the word that uh, Andreas used earlier, um, it conveys the impression that she was a really a sturdy realist, there was a sturdy realism to her. But on the other hand, um, the title of the book that you've published is between, is it between utopia and realism or between, uh, yes, it is. So there is also the utopia in there. Then again, in, in reading this liberalism of fear by, uh, by Sklar, she makes it, she emphasizes her non-utopianness. Um, so she, she emphasizes this very much. And then my question would in a way be, would it make sense in some way to speak of her thinking, having some kind of utopian dimension nonetheless? And if so, maybe would it then make sense to differentiate maybe to think about utopia on the one hand as thinking about the perfect political system or the perfect you know, state, and on the other hand, utopian in the sense of a better or a less bad uh, world or something like this. Maybe is that more of the kind of utopianism, if any, if there's any at all in, in Sklar? Yeah, well, important. Uh, you mentioned the title between utopia and realism. I think we opted for that because it shows nicely the tension that is in her work and the tension she puts to productive use. So it's neither total utopia, but it's also not giving in totally just to realism without any values or orientations. <clears throat> and my understanding of the way she talks about utopias, uh, from utopias in the past, is that um, they allow to be critical of the society you're living in. So for example, in her book on, on Rousseau, she makes that point. She says, you don't have to agree with the perfect republic that um, or the social contract that Rousseau envisions, but it helps understanding Rousseau if you think it, if you think his utopia as being a critique of actually existing society. So in that sense, utopias are necessary and will always be there, uh, but there are various ways of reading them. And I think she wants to read them without having an idea of, you know, a, a kind of outline of how we all should live like in the future. I think it's much more uh, an image that she's trying to deconstruct and build at the same time as utopia as a critique of actually existing society. And there are lots of things that are wrong with existing societies at any given point in history. So I think it's rather this milder critical notion of utopianism that she uh, is interested in. Mm, can I add to that? Because I'm, if utopia is a no place, and where I went to when you asked that question, a very interesting question, um, is, well, utopia is a no place. Her first book is after utopia, is a, a sense in which this is a post-utopic world, so we have to have our feet on the ground in some way. But Scar was very good at she was a very imaginative thinker. So, for example, my favorite chapter of the now the book, her lecture series on political obligation, is on Shakespeare's <clears throat> Richard II. And this is a lecture that deals with the question of um, the divine right of kings and of medieval kingship and the the, the kings the, the the doctrine of the king's two bodies the idea that okay there's there is the persona of the sovereign that is immortal and then there is the sovereign uh, mortal person who happens to embody that uh, a particular moment in time so she deals with the whole thing through shakespeare's play richard ii um 
very effectively. Um, but what she does is, is to use the text as this text of a, a kind of imaginative text to show her students how it is that this doctrine of medieval kinship, kingship rather, comes unstuck. Yeah. So she's she. I think that her response to the the utopia versus real the realism in our title, for example, would be well. You need to exercise your imagination and and kind of you know you can use all sorts of different resources to write political theory. Yeah. One of them being you know uh, Shakespearean tragedy. Mm. You know it's not you know the resources don't have to be the resources of political science don't have to be relentlessly political science kind of data, they can also be things like sort of narratives, they can be uh, novels, they can be plays <clears throat> and, and, and so on. So she's kind of post-utopia, but looking for creative ways of kind of thinking about the politics of our present. Can I just briefly come in on this as well? And this is in, also in relation to um, the book on the, the, the lectures on, on political obligation. The first proper chapter, apart from an introductory chapter, the first proper chapter is about a comparison between uh, Bonhoeffer, the theologian, and, uh, and Weizsäcker, the um, father of the, the former president of, the, uh, of West Germany, Richard von Weizsäcker, who uh, had been accused of war crimes. Uh, in and he was uh, in the foreign office, the German foreign office. And so she makes a comparison between the two and she clearly sides with Bonhoeffer and against the realism of, um, of von Weizsäcker. Von Weizsäcker basically gave in. I mean, he was not, uh, he wasn't uh, what, what, what you could call a kind of um, somebody who embraced Nazism, but he went along with it. Um, as his duty. Uh, as, as his duty, as he understood it. Uh, which clearly uh, for Sklar uh, is uh, not right. And as a counterpoint to that, she also comes up with then Bonhoeffer as the alternative, who felt an equal duty towards his country, but uh, that led then to opposition and to subversive activities against the National Socialist regime. But of course, Bonhoeffer would have been impossible without utopia of a more just society, a more mm. Christian society, if you want, um, a society in which you know violence uh, would not play a, a major role. Um, so there's this, there's a kind of a, a, a Christian utopia in Bonhoeffer that uh, Judith Sklar likes against the super realism uh, and the opportunism, one should say, actually, of, of von Weizsäcker. Thank you very much. That's that's very clarifying. <clears throat> Maybe just to get one more thought on, on this utopian um, thinking out of my system uh, was that when I read it, when I read the text and this you know, conceptions of utopia and so on was flying around in my head. The one thing I thought about, and it struck me what you would think about it, it was, would it, do you think it would make sense in a way of thinking of Sklar's philosophy as less utopian or maybe not even as simply non-utopian, but maybe in a, in a sense as anti-dystopian, <laughs> you know, to put it in this way, you know, and have focused on, on cruelty and so on. So it's always about the kind of orienting uh, to, towards away from this. And again, also then the, the talk about the, the party of memory comes in. So looking back uh, and, uh, you know, kind of looking back on the horrors and the terrors and the cruelty that was there and then kind of getting away from this, but to nowhere particular. Does that make, is that a sound uh, characterization in a way? Yeah, I would think so. I think you're, you're, you're pretty right in your, your summary. Um, I, I would agree with that. Uh, that. Don't forget, I mean, there's some, I, I'm not in favor of explaining every aspect of Judith Class work through her biography and her experiences. I mean, it would be cutting her short and her work it would be, you know, falling short of a full acknowledgement of our capacities. But of course, I mean, it would also equally be wrong not to see any relations about her experiences in, in relation to her work. So I think uh, having escaped National Socialism and Stalinism in one go at a very lucky moment when she was still young and having seen that 
despite having been brought up in a relatively well upper middle class, if not to say elite family in, in, in Riga before the war broke out. Um, yeah, but also told her that money doesn't make the world go round. Um, Anti-Semitism doesn't just disappear because you're rich. Uh, you cannot buy yourself out of this. Uh, so she clearly saw also the limits that any uh, economic, uh, um, how can I put it, solid foundation doesn't prevent other things from happening to you. Um, and surely, I mean, she brought up in these kind of, yeah, the high peak of what we call today totalitarianism, short of another word. Um, I think if we break it down, we can't do finer distinctions, but let's just use it for the for the for the time being. Uh, and so she has these experiences. So that means also any any kind of positive, super positive notions about a socialist utopia or communist utopia. Uh, equally uh, a view of uh, a hyper-capitalism that would sort out, where the market would sort out uh, everything that would come then later. I mean, both these things she would clearly reject. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's uh, I think, a, a good middle position to, to be in, which also allows it to be critical enough, but still engaging, of course, with people who think along those lines. Mm. Thank you very much. I will stop talking about utopia and dystopia now. <laughs> Mati, did you have a question? Uh, yeah, maybe I could ask one. I was actually thinking of uh, how she starts off with prevention of cruelty, right? And she talks about cruelty as a vice, but she doesn't talk about cruelty as, as something like a corruption of some kind of goodness or something like that, but she takes cruelty in its own right and builds it from there and she sees kind of vices in their own kind of independent existence and how we have to understand them apart from their opposites. So I actually found this very interesting because when she starts off this as, as it being important for any kind of society, uh, she's also building on the experiences of people who've been abused or victims or uh, sufferings at of at the hands of the government or something. So maybe you, maybe you could say something, any of you, on how this, this, why cruelty is so important in its own right. And this is kind of the primary starting point before we can get to any forms of freedom or equality or anything like that. Okay, I mean, I would, um, I would link her work on cruelty quite closely with the book Faces of Injustice as well. I think that, that these two arguments kind of go together. And they are, I think, evidence of Scar resisting that kind of synthesizing move that you find in a great deal of um, philosophy, Christian theology, and so on, of um, the incorporation of everything into, you know, even, even Satan is made by God. <laughs> so it's a refusal of, of the world must be kind of made up of one substance in the end. Yeah, it's, it's a kind of refusal of that idea. And I think you can see, you see this playing through the way in which in Faces of Injustice, injustice, she, she asks us to think very carefully about how the idea of the boundary between misfortune and injustice shifts around, that this is a political distinction where we draw the line between these two is, is a kind of a political uh, question um, for us and it always has been, argues Judith Scar. When you come to cruelty, I think that I'm tempted to line this up with other with with the the treatment that that quite a few philosophers have tried to give um, evil um, recently. So kind of looking at the way in which um, philosophical arguments tend to kind of fold evil back into rationalizable motives and to say, well, actually, no, we need to pay substantive attention to the fact that uh, humans are capable of doing really hideous things to one another and, and to pay attention to that. So, so one could certainly kind of line her up with those arguments that are, if you like, 
after Kant and after Kant's kind of fleeting glimpse at, at what would happen if you turned his categorical imperative on its head. Yeah, Kantian religion within the limits of reason alone kind of has this moment of going, ha, oh, it's ghastly. I can see what my, my whole system does if you flip it over. Yeah. So you get then Kant um, avec Sard from someone like Lacan. Um, yeah, so there's a whole kind of thinking of, of, of evil after Kant that you could slot Sklar's work into. But I think the difference that, that Judith Sklar brings to that whole trying to think about um, evil is that she's really concerned in a way that I think many of those writers aren't so concerned. I think she is very much concerned with the experience of fearfulness. Yeah, many of these discussions have gone on in um, dry kind of academic philosophizing. I think that the way in which Scar comes at these is very much through the kind of grain of what's the experience like? This is always a move that she makes. She tries to put herself into the shoes of, of the protagonist she's writing about. This is the, the effectiveness of her, her lecture on Richard II. Yeah, she, she sort of... You can imagine her at the front of the lecture theatre, kind of battling it out. The students must have been enthralled. Yeah, she's into trying to get into what's the experience like and, and working from there, which is a move that many philosophers, for example, just won't make. Yeah, they, they kind of separate themselves from, from um, what they're writing about. Yeah, maybe to add to this from, from a slightly different perspective, um... The way I read the two books, um, Ordinary Vices and Faces of Injustice, I see the latter one as, um, um, as a further explanation of something that wasn't covered in Ordinary Vices. I mean, if Ordinary Vices is good at uh, saying, look, I mean, uh, values and uh, virtues alone will no longer do. You have to do something else. And there's no point in defending a liberalism that believes in everlasting progress, where things just get better all the time, if you just have the right reforms, this kind of weak form of writing liberal history. She certainly uh, wants to have nothing to do with that. Uh, she's very, very critical of that. Uh, because also, I mean, it, it, it obliterates kind of the rather dodgy sides of liberalism as well, um, and of early signs of constitutionalism and so on and so forth. So for example, can you speak of the United States as being a liberal society. Well, she would argue, if at all, if at all, maybe after the Civil War, before that. I mean, the idea that the United States was a liberal society before that is just horrendous. I mean, how can you have, as she would argue, how can you have slavery and be liberal? That that's, 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 that's just doesn't, doesn't work. Um, at the same time, there is a kind of underground history a subcurrent in American history that she also talks about, uh, where liberalism doesn't become a kind of manifest political system, but there are en enough critical elements in the system that allow for further development. So for, for example, when she talks about the founding fathers, she makes this wonderful, I think it's one of the best distinctions that she comes up with. Um, it's actually a distinction that was made not by her, she picks it up from uh, from somebody else, uh, this is the distinction between the party of memory and the party of hope. Again, brings us back partly to the question of realism and uh, utopia. So you have then not individuals that um, stand for either one of the positions, but you have a, a strange mix where, where you have elements of both in one person or in more than one person, which complicates matters. So for example, the old, thing that you always hear these days about uh, how is it possible that somebody like Jefferson uh, was a slaveholder at the same time he has this utopia of a good democracy and if everything goes right you know things will be fine and slavery will somehow somehow be eroded or disappear when everything is fine in whatever time uh, so you have that but at the same time Jefferson was also critical enough about other aspects. Um, or then you have a person like, on the other side, let's see, um, John Adams, who would be rather a defender of the, um, of, of um, that, that sticks to the memory side of things. 
um, the party of memory who remembers that things have been really bad in Europe. That's one of the reasons why people started out in the new world, creating new injustices there. Okay, uh, we all know that, uh, but still an attempt to create a better world that isn't linked out of the suffering that they had experienced in Europe. So uh, party of memory and party of hope go, go well together. But all in all, I think it's fair to say that ordinary vices is a rejection about uh, a sense of liberal progress. And it takes on some elements of Republican thought, but also things Republicans are not very good in providing kind of really good answers to most of the problems that we face today. It takes something else, hence her unique coinage of the liberalism of fear, which doesn't really sit that easy along other traditions of liberalism. Um, so that's one thing. And then I think uh, lots of people have said, oh, it's just a negative catalog that she comes up with, avoid the worst, which is cruelty. Uh, but what's that? That sounds too defensive for some. Well, to that, I would argue, or some people have even accused uh, Skla of what, what people call monism, just having reducing one thing to one principle and working from there. I think uh, that is absolutely not true. There's nothing wrong, I would argue, and Skla does this really well. There's nothing wrong in saying, um, look, uh, I'm against cruelty, but that doesn't prevent me from also being for social reform when it's necessary or radical reform even, if it's necessary. So, uh, and which is then outlined in her book on injustice, where she says, well, lots and lots of injustices. It's difficult to spell out positively what justice is all about. Injustice is perhaps a little bit more and more sophisticated and allows for further insights. If you are interested in justice, first look at the injustices, she would argue. Uh, and then you can build from there and there's nothing wrong and putting certain elements into a society that would help you to avoid those injustices. I mean, she would not, she would, she would, in that sense, she would be a kind of a social democrat, probably in the European sense of the word, and a, a radical liberal in, in the American sense of the word. Um, small liberal, small social democrats. So not, not members, as members of a party, but uh, just indicating a spectrum in which she works. I, I can maybe throw a quick comment in there. I, I can't tell if it's a if it's its own question or if it's my response is like more to a comment of everything that's come before because I'm thinking back to the when I originally said that this wasn't the, the principle of cruelty was something foundational because I thought that or at least the way I understood it was that it, it does lead towards well at least my understanding of cruelty through Sklar is that it eventually gets her to citizenship and the value of citizenship and and the so the question that I have that's kind of connecting all this uh, for me, uh, actually relates to this article that when I was reading about Slar, I kept thinking of this one article by Philip Haley uh, called From Cruelty to Goodness. And he also wrote a book um, called The Paradox of Cruelty. And he, in the book, he, he, he discovers that, or he says that the emphasis on cruelty should be investigated from the perspective of the victims and, and not the victimizer. Uh, and so that falls right aligned with her ideas of injustice, that that's how to be best understand it. And these are the voices who have been essentially left out of political discussion. And so I guess my question then is, I wonder if this is a path that Scar would have taken herself to reach the concept of, to reach the, the point at which she puts such a high value on citizenship, because, uh, and I'll just say one last side note, is that the, the, uh, the cruelty concept that Philip Haley was was unpacking was was that he recognized that cruelty uh, persisted whenever there was power imbalance, and as soon as those imbalances were um, were restored, or as soon as they were as soon as this power differentials were um, eliminated, then the the cruelty actually went away. Um, and so one one way in which you can eliminate a power a power imbalance of this kind, and which which gives the space for cruelty, is to provide a kind of citizenship. So would that be like a, a, a good way to describe maybe how she would arrive at this as, as, as such an important thing, citizenship? I think it's a very good way to um, come at it. Yeah, so I think that the, I mean, another way to, to phrase it would be to say that, um, that 
liberalism very often is seen to signify a uh, negative conception of, of liberty, yeah, classically, Isaiah Berlin's kind of negative liberty versus positive liberty. For Sklar, you can't, you can't really effectively have one without having the other, yeah, so the, the book on citizenship is about voting and earning, it's about um, being incorporated uh, into a society in a kind of social democratic way, but it's also a very republican argument because it's about um, it's about non-domination, yeah. So to link up with with what you were, you were just saying, I think that her concern is about is about people being um, able to participate, contribute, have standing to the point where they are not um, fearful and and living in living in um, a universe that that's wholly made by another person not being able to kind of realize oneself in that sense so I think she she is a difficult person to to categorize straightforwardly as liberal or as Republican because she really pulls both things uh, pulls on both things in in quite an unusual way I think yeah you can just Say maybe to add to this uh, on, on the victim's perspective, I think this is one of the strong points in Faces of Injustice. At the same time, uh, Judith Klaas is very good not to turn victims into automatic heroes. Mm. Uh, and so, so it's, he's, he, she's against the kind of victimology uh, that can have its dodgy sides as well. I mean, it sounds maybe a little bit uh, provocative, but there's nothing nice about about being a victim right and 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 uh, and kind of uh, trying to to make that the whole cornerstone of your life uh, that can be quite an oppressive way of living a life and she points to the if you want also the uh, problematic side of turning victims into automatic heroes um, she's interested in the victim's role but without trying to what's the word heroicizing the yeah. uh, that role uh, that that is an important thing to remember not not everybody who is an underdog or has suffered is automatically a better person for it very often it's actually the other way around uh, you I mean you might be damaged yeah uh, for in psychologically physically scarred in many ways um, and some people have managed to turn this around to to uh, to a kind of positive effect if you want in the sense that they found meaning in it and uh, that's all good and fine but uh, but to turn victimhood into an ideology I think that would be uh, a big mistake. Can I just add something to this? Um, so I think maybe what, what might also be interesting to add then would be to say that someone who is the victim in, in relation to Others who are, you know, in a position of power might him or herself find him or herself in the position of power towards yet others again. So the victim might at the same time be the, the oppressor in a different relation um, or later in time. Um, so th these were at least thoughts that came to my mind when reading it. And, and, and uh, so then, then I thought this then opened the door for me for further thoughts on um, to which extent is cruelty um, really um, primarily or maybe just exclusively a problem um, between those who have political power and the population, does it not also make sense or isn't, is it not also important to speak about how people are just, you know, um, within the system maybe cruel to one another and there might also be power dynamics in place here without the political uh, coming into play. So, uh, you know, there might be, you know, just racist tendencies in a society and uh, you know so somewhere in the southern united states or wherever you know uh, there, there might be um, it might be very strong um, so so here here might be a power relation between um, be between you know the, the racists and and their victims and there might be cruelty involved although this not, need not in any way be institutionalized so these were just some thoughts that i had and i would just be interested in what what what's Clara or Clarion would would have to say on these things? Well, I mean, let me just first thing say about something a footnote about Clarion. Uh, I mean, I don't think we Sam and I would pretend to be kind of uh, Clarion in the sense that we want to found a, a school or we have to be faithful to a person or so. I mean, that would be so 
in a way anti-sclerian. Uh, so I don't, and I think, you know, I have, I mean, if you ask me for who are my favorite authors, I could add uh, instantly another two or three, which by the way, wouldn't maybe not, wouldn't be that far away to, to from Judith Sklar. Uh, but so I don't want to be reduced to, you know, just being sclerian, but okay. For the sake of the argument now, um, let me just say that if you read Ordinary Vices, I think you find the five essays in there, the roughly five essays, I think, if I remember correctly. Uh, they describe, if you want, micro constellations in which cruelty happens in one way or another. Um, and some of that uh, have to do with you, you. You may want to answer, may, may want to question whether it's how far that is institutionalized, and how far is that maybe almost a common anthropological experience there, yeah, uh, without naturalizing it. Um, so, for example, uh, when she talks about unfair treatment uh, at Harvard University. Uh, she talks, of course, about her own experiences there and uh, what it meant to have been, uh, you, you know, I wouldn't say openly discriminated against, but it's a fact that she was the first uh, first woman um, who got tenure in the uh, in the government department, um, and how hard it was after you know this after so how many years uh, where she hadn't been promoted and and so on and so forth. So there are kind of these micro aspects shine through in ordinary voices. But then also there are various uh, other constellations that she talks about, sometimes with institutions, sometimes not directly institutionalized. And yeah, so they, they, they are almost a kind of a mini phenomenology of situations and constellations where cruelty happened to somebody and what happens next, right? And how can you analyze it and how can you think about these, uh, these issues? Sam, yeah okay so yes um i would agree i wouldn't i've i don't think i've ever described myself as an ian of anybody um but i think she's very good traveling companion <laughs> would be the way i would she's good to think with um which i think is is something one should always aspire to be um i think she on in the question of of the <clears throat> if you like the regularized ways in which in societies such as ours, people can be cruel to one another, can exhibit hate toward one another and so on. Her response I think would be that um, the significant thing that, the, that is, is that virtues will no longer do, yeah, is, is that we can't, you know, if we wanna live in liberal societies, we can't go around policing people's consciences. What we can do is try to make sure that we have public frameworks of, of law and uh, social support and uh, rights to, to um, work and so on that mean that no individual should be uh, wholly reliant on another who or an institution that is overwhelmingly cruel to them so I think that would be her response would be that if we want people to have kind of liberties to live as they choose we can't police this in in this kind of micro kind of way that that the policing of virtue would suggest so I would put her in a similar place on this at least to someone like Habermas who against the kind of communitarianism that is rife in our age says look we have to build societies in which we have the right to remain strangers to one another yeah that doesn't mean we neglect one another's you know the the need for respect for one another and one another's rights but we don't actually want to know i don't want to know what my neighbors are doing in their kitchen three doors down frankly you know um i'm happy you know to share to share food with them occasionally and you know other things as well but i really don't want to know you know what they are doing at half past 11 on a Tuesday night with one another. It's not my business, right? So I think, and I think, I suspect Scar would have a similar kind of line on that. And that means that there has to be quite a clear demarcation between um, kind of what we might call morals and on the other hand, the kind of the political political citizenship and, and a kind of healthy respect for the <clears> fact that we're not all very, we're not all similar to one another and isn't that wonderful? would be, you know, what I would extrapolate from, from her writing to say is that's, that's, I think, how she would respond to your question. Thank you. And I didn't 
need mean to describe you as Clarians. I just <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> A compliment <laughs> that we can't live up to. <laughs> it does make sense that your response would be a no to that uh, distinction just on the grounds that she like you had described her earlier that she's she can't be uh, defined by any any kind of single political philosophy she's pulling from everywhere and and uh, yeah she's very free in that sense so so it seems like it would be hard to pin down but but you definitely seem like experts on on Sklar. <laughs> yeah but yes I mean she's quite eclectic but she it, it but that does not mean that anything goes Mm -hmm. I think this is also important to realize. I mean, there are some threads that run through her work that one can identify. Um, I mean, for example, in the book that I have written about, I mean, it has the subtitle Exile from Exile. And I still think there's a lot of mileage uh, in, in, in that uh, attempt to mm -hmm. describe her. Uh, she is an exile, but not the usual exile. Uh, and on top of that, uh, towards the end of her life, she was thinking about this project, which I still think is a, a, the, one of the most amazing ideas I ever came across and still unfulfilled, is to write the history of political thought uh, from the perspective of exiles. Uh, she started doing this towards the end of her life, couldn't finish it. Um, and I think the idea is just extraordinary um, in, in many ways, because it throws up the questions of political obligation. What do we owe to each other? What's the experience of the exile? What's the people who are stateless, who are floating around the system? We're living in the century of refugees, uh, and it hasn't declined in the 21st century. They're more than ever before, which shows up the question you know, about belonging, political belonging. Uh, you have, as you know, you have no rights if you are floating in the Mediterranean Sea uh, at the mercy of somebody picking you up. I mean, yeah, and, and, and even that is not being done. So we're living in kind of very dotty times um and i mean one of the ideas uh, i'll just maybe go make a proposal here to you as the interviewers maybe <clears throat> towards um the end of our conversation we can talk a little bit about why it's glad today uh, you know that would be i think one of an interesting interesting questions uh, because it seems you know there's a lot of floating in the sense that uh, people either they return to some old um theories and practices, for, be it Marxism or socialism. There are others who want to have other things in mind. Um, so with, in that, uh, in that really crucial juncture where I at, at the moment, I think Skla could be give really good points for orientation. She doesn't describe what you need to do, but uh, mm -hmm. she at least helps you and gives you a few pointers in what one should think about if one wants to make this world a better place. I have one question which I'm quite interested in, if you still have time. But oh, sure, fire away. Uh, because I, I was really interested in um, the life. Actually, there are two questions com combined. Maybe I'll try to combine them together. But in the life of Shklar, uh, the first question is uh, whether she has been an anti-foundationist all along or whether she had these kind of... Uh, the thoughts that she had, whether it was because of her experiences or she started off as having a kind of a, uh, maybe she appreciated kind of more positive conceptions or positive conceptions of utopia and then kind of got uh, disillusioned by that and she went off to uh, uh, conceptions of anti-foundationalism and all that. That's, that's one question. And I guess another question, which is not very much related to this, but I think it's very much related to what Sam said about her being uh, sort of, is it anti-community, anti-communitarism? And I can relate to her work very well because I mean, I come from, uh, I belong to a minority society in India and even just traveling out of my state itself means that I have to, reorient my own worldview. So it's only within my state that I would actually understand my worldview. And when, of course, when I come to Europe, it's also another matter of reorientation. So uh, there's this constant uh, instance of reorientation and she speaks about the plight of refugees or something like that where they speak about there's 
is it's actually hard to find maybe uh, kind of instances of commonality or to build on, even if we build, I guess, a community, what do we build on? It's not only on instances of commonality, right? It's, it's a constant kind of reorientation and reworking about the world. I mean, I'm more for the conception of community or having community around and not so much as individualistic, but I think then the idea of community really changes in these days, maybe according to Shklar's thoughts or something like that, or uh, how would you comment? Because we are coming in from, especially when you talk about exiles and refugees and minorities, we're coming in with very different conceptions of worldviews and also, there's a lot of abuse happening. So, yeah, maybe your thoughts on that. Sorry, those were two long questions. <laughs> well, maybe as to the last question first, um, I think there's a, there's a famous line from Clifford Geertz, uh, the social anthropologist, mm -hmm. who said, uh, in the world of splinters, you have to address the splinters. Uh, so I think this is, a, I think probably Judith Clare would, would go along with that quite a way. Um, so it doesn't help to follow then uh, directions that do not or that prevent you from looking at the splinters uh, in of this world. I think that that would be my my first answer, and that means you know being anti-foundational, non-identitarian, or only as much as you need to be uh, in order to live a good life. But beyond that, mm, it gets a little bit more difficult. Um, so that's my first short answer to your second question. As to the first one, uh, has she always been like this? Now, this is an interesting one. Um, I think in orientation, my straightforward answer would be yes. But there are important shifts in her work. I read her, maybe Sam has, has a different interpretation of that, but the way I read her is it took her a long time to find her own voice. If you look at the first four or five books, um, there's a trilogy that deals with Rousseau, Hegel, and uh, Montesquieu. Mm. Uh, the Montesquieu one is already slightly different from the first two. I mean, it's somebody who's trying to find her voice by working through the theory of somebody else, uh, but falls somewhat short of actually saying what that extra bit is at the end. And I think it only happens with... Uh, couple of essays preceding ordinary vices and then with ordinary vices that sklar becomes the sklar that we come to to read and maybe to even to admire to a certain extent uh, so she finds her own voice um, and that becomes clear and she at heart also don't forget she's an essay writer she has always been even her books i mean you read ordinary vices a collection of five essays ar around a certain theme uh, and even the, let, the the other books, they are enlarged essays. Um, and the essay per se is the democratic form. You try out things. You don't know what the, what what will be. It's an experiment. Yeah, you don't know what the outcome will be. You're playing around with ideas, and hopefully you come out stronger at the other end. Uh, and I like this kind of experimental attitude in her writing. Um, and sometimes you can be surprised. Uh, maybe we haven't stress that enough in this uh, in this conversation i think the the capacity to surprise is one of the best aspects in her work so you start re read, reading something and you think okay well you know and suddenly you are on a different planet and she guides you through a, a text that you you thought you knew but she throws a totally different light uh, onto it and comes up with uh, a unique answer i think we need more surprises, yeah? And to be open to the unexpected um, as, as opposed to the, the predictable and particularly now in, in these delicate times we're living in, um, that doesn't mean just piecemeal reform. No, I think you can go, can do much more, but it just means, you know, how often are we still surprised? I mean, if somebody believes in a certain ideology or loves a certain theory, very often they become quite dogmatic about this huh? um, and so I really find it a great liberation to to read Sklar because she still surprises us there are a couple of other authors um, Alberto Hirschman comes to mind who Sklar knew well 
uh, in a slightly different <clears throat> direction because it thinks more about um, about political economy and the critique of it. But they're, they're very close in their thinking. Yeah, um, a couple of others I can think about, but uh, let me hand over and maybe Sam also come in here. Well, I would add to your. Um, she's capable of surprising <clears throat> us, which I think is one of the things I also love. She also had a wicked sense of humor. I mean, there are moments when reading her books, I will laugh out loud. You know, some, uh, uh, you know, some observations that she makes. So I think add a wicked sense of humor in as well. Um, but the anti-foundationalism, I mean, I'm aware that that I used that, that concept earlier in the conversation. It's not a concept that I think Sklar, would readily reach for herself to describe her work. It is trying to get, but trying to get a hold of her kind of orientation to to the world. Yeah, I think I think that it's a sensibility in a way. It's and it's a sensibility, as I tried to kind of outline earlier, that I think comes from an experience of well, the world can be a precarious place, and there isn't a reliable thing like this is what human nature looks like it's she doesn't do what Hobbes does and sort of you know nail down an account of human nature from which you can draw a politics kind of ineluctably so I think that's the the anti-foundationalism is the is the frame we're using to try to get a hold of that sensibility rather than it being her language herself but the where the anti-foundationalism as as we're calling it and the anti-communitarianism perhaps can be joined as well, is in a very short piece that she wrote for um, a uh, special issue of a, a journal uh, edited by Friedrich, her PhD supervisor. She wrote this short essay on decisionism. And she sort of says, she, she sort of weighs up the, you know, uh, the case and she says, well, you know, there are far worse things to be than a kind of decisionist when it comes to, to politics. You know, in, a, in other words, there is no, there's no meta-narrative into which you can ground this to, you know, kind of cement it and make it as you can. And actually, that is, in effect, what, you know, we're left with at the level of politics, which is a sort of anti-foundationalist move it's a move that quite a few political theorists who realize that there is no holy grail anymore um, would kind of end up endorsing and i think that's connected then to the anti-foundationism the anti-communitarianism the the sense in which there isn't uh, you know where is the the already made extant community that you never want to disrupt it just doesn't exist the problem or the issue might be and it's an issue for thinkers <clears throat> like Sky. It's also an issue for, for anyone else who wants to hold on to the fact that of human diversity and nonetheless to say, look, there are certain things we owe one another as fellow human beings. And actually, this is a matter of kind of dignity and respect and what have you. So how do you hold on to a sufficiently deep, robust and um, fleshed out politics that has, for example, redistribution kind of locked into it at the same time as being able to, to hold on to the idea that, well, we don't have to be like one another, do we? And I think there, there is a tension there that, and it's a tension in Sklar in the same way that it's a tension in any other, any other kind of liberal writer, but who wants not to let those who are perhaps infirm or frail in in some way go to the wall and she certainly wouldn't have wanted that i think uh, sklar would in a way very well fit in the in the kind of philosophy that we for for great part do at the center maybe um give a specific twist to it too but uh, um this anti-foundationalism this essayistic approach um, um, also her strong individual voice and uh, as you mentioned the, the humor and you know you, you really get the impression that there's someone an individual who who presents th thinking you know not only finished thought uh, which I really liked uh, when reading it so and I feel like that would resonate with many of us um, but now I think it might be time to wrap it up and then I <laughs> think would be good if Patrick you say maybe some final words. Uh, sure. Um, can you guys hear me okay? Yes. My 
my connection went was severed in the middle, but I'm back. Uh, no, thank thank you both very much. Um, so uh, Sam Ashton and Andreas Hess are both presenting at our upcoming conference, which is called "Looking Forward in Hope and Despair: Critical Perspectives on Utopian Dystopia in Philosophy and the Arts." And that's going to be April 14, 15, and 16th. And the two of you are presenting together on the 16th of April. So we're we're very excited for that. And um, I just wanted to say thank you very much for doing this. Actually, did either of you would like to say anything else before we sign off? I'd like to say thank you for the invitation. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah. Thank I you concur. so much. I concur. And uh, thanks very much for having us. Yeah, and it was a very pleasant and uh, lively conversation. I really enjoyed it. I think we're all convinced to reach Klarna. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> for our reading groups or something like that. Yeah, yeah, we could. Which book should we start with? Oh, that's a trap. I mean, my personal, my uh, my favorite is, uh, and it had, that hasn't always been the case, is uh, Faces of Injustice. But uh, I think for for starters, if you really, I think the essay collection, Political Thought, Political Thinkers, is a wonderful, it's probably one of the best starts to get into our work and start from there and then, you know, explore. I think that would be, would be my take. I agree with you. It's either Faces of Injustice or the essays in political form, political thinkers. Yeah, let's start cool. there. Okay, right. guys. Okay. Have a good day today. Thank you so much. Boy, you, you too. too. Okay, bye. 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 Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.